Okay, well, as I alluded to uh, in our opening, we're going to talk about a topic today that I love. Uh, we're going to tackle 12 verses in Ephesians 2, and it's going to be this oneness in Christ, this unity in Christ idea, and the call really of the passage, and this is why it's so great, is I, I love when scripture shows itself to be timeless, because I think that is one of the enemy's greatest attacks on the church is to try and convince anyone, believer or non, that the message of Jesus Christ or his holy word is out of date, archaic, or simply just cannot bridge the 2,000 years to get to where we are today. So anytime I see a passage where it's just hot button in your face, right on top of what we're doing, I just, I light up and I think this passage does that for us today. It has a lot for us to glean for our culture, for us as a church, as a body, and I hope to challenge you today to sit back and at the end, all I'm gonna do is just ask questions. I just wanna ask some questions to help us evaluate where in different areas of our lives we can get sidetracked and where we may be potentially disunified with other brothers or sisters in Christ. So that's the lay of the land. We're gonna break down the verses and we're gonna apply some of these things by me just challenging you to take some questions home and wrestle with them throughout the week, knowing that I've wrestled a lot in even prep for this. As I prep for these things, the Lord just comes in and just starts messing with me left and right. And, and that's one of the things that can be a challenge. So just know that I'm wrestling with this stuff. We'll wrestle with it together. I told you guys last week, I hate to do things alone. So we'll dive in together. So with that, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, we'll put it up here on the screen, but I'm gonna read it through. And it's kind of a wordy passage. So just follow along and know that we're gonna reread them as we go through them. So it says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken in and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he, came to, uh, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, so a lot going on there, 12 verses, and we're gonna break them down a couple at a time. But what I wanna do as we start off here is I want to just laser focus us in on the cultural context of what's going on in the first century so that you can see how pertinent this is today. This passage is dealing with undoubtedly a racial issue, okay? So to be Jewish 
was not something you chose to do. You were born into Judaism. It wasn't like you went to the store and bought a t-shirt. It was something that as a family, you were born into and you grew up with it as a heritage. It was absolutely who you were. It wasn't a spiritual choice. It was a race of people, the Jewish people. And so as this is going on, what you have to see today is that, and because most of us know Jewish history, at least to some degree, it's always kind of been the Jews and everybody else, right? That's kind of the background for what's going on here. And so what Paul is speaking into is he is speaking into a gigantic racial divide that exists in the first century church. That's why he's writing this section of this letter, because there is an issue. And he's coming in and he's saying, Jew and Gentile, let me address you now. So keep that in mind. We have to look at this through that lens. This is the racial issue of the day, and we got to look at it from that. Verse 11 starts off, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by flesh in the hands. What Paul does here in these first two verses is he is going to level the field. He's going to bring everybody down to the same level. And he starts with the Gentiles saying, hey, remember at one time you guys Gentiles? And he calls them back to what they for sure would have experienced because the Jewish people were sort of seen to have the corner, market cornered on God. They, you know, hey, listen, we got the God of the Bible and he's done all these awesome, but you're not in. And you're not in because you weren't born in, so you can't get in. So what Paul's doing is he's basically calling them back to these painful things that have been said to them. He said, listen, at one point you were called the uncircumcision by those who were the circumcision. Remember that? He's basically saying, remember that riff? And then what Paul does here is beautiful because remember, he can't just level the Gentiles and then kind of leave the Jews where they are. He needs everybody to take on a stature of humility in order that we can move forward to what he's gonna do in 13 and 14. So this little comment here where he goes, you were called the uncircumcision by the circumcision, which is done in the flesh by hands. What Paul's doing here is he is likening the Gentiles, or the, yeah, the Gentiles who are sitting there with pagan worship. Where are they? They're in Rome, okay? What's going on in Rome? It is a pantheistic society. There are gods everywhere. You just go into one temple, you can worship one god. You go into another, you can worship... They have gods all over the place. But they are represented by hand-carved idols, made in the flesh by hands. And what Paul is doing is he's going, wait a minute, do you see this? You over here, Jews, are clinging to something made in the flesh by hands. You're clinging to a ritual. And what Paul does with that statement is he likens something by basically going, this is no longer something to be clung to. You're clinging to your ritual. Even though it was requested by God at some point, what Paul's saying, and he's uniquely qualified to do this, we'll break that down in a minute. But he's sitting there going, hey, this is not something to be clung to. Because in light of the glorious fulfillment of the law, which is Christ, circumcision can't be clung to anymore. It loses its virtue in light of Jesus. So in the midst of this little, he, he basically starts a comment and addresses the Gentiles and goes, hey, Gentiles, remember, at one point you were called these things, oh, and by the way, Jews, take it down a notch, and then comes back to the Gentiles, and this is what he says to them in 12. Remember that you were at that time, which he started in 11, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Do you know what that word for without God is? In the original Greek, it's the word atheos. 
What does that sound like in our, in our American language? Somebody say atheist. Atheist. That's right. Good job, guys. We're already on the same page. It's that word, atheist. But its meaning is far richer than what we think of today. When, when we think atheist today, what do we think? We go, okay, not agnostic, which, no, what further? Okay, what's further? No God at all. They don't believe that God exists. That's typically what we do. But the meaning is richer. The Greek, what it means here is one who disdains or denies God. Our view of atheism is just sort of a, yeah, I just, I, I wrote him off. He's not even around. This word is deeper than that. One who disdains or denies God or the gods and their laws, a God denier. So what Paul's done over here is he's come in and he said, hey, listen, that thing you're clinging to within the ritual circumcision, not a thing anymore. It's lost its virtue. And Gentiles, you over here, you cannot sit here and think that you had just kind of a bad God and now you're getting an upgrade. You were without gods. You had no gods. You, just like they were clinging to a flesh handmade thing, you're doing the same thing. You didn't have gods, kind of. You had nothing. And now you have an eternal being. And what Paul does in these first two verses, and it's hard to see because when you read it, they're wordy and they're kind of, where do I connect the dots? The dots connect here. Everybody, take a seat. You all need to relax and chill out because the ground gets level at the cross. No race stands above another race. I don't care what your socioeconomic standing is. You are all equal at the foot of the cross in front of Christ, your Lord and Savior, because you call him Lord. And that's what got done at the cross. So he levels the playing field so that he can do what he does in 13, which is this. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Okay, I keep reading the scriptures, not because I didn't read them to start with, but I want you to hear them over and over and over again so that they stick throughout the sermon. Here's the reality. What Paul does in these two verses is he does two things. He describes this bringing close of the Gentiles as well as showing us how Jesus is our peace. And if you leave with nothing else today, I want you to see that Jesus' plan for being the peace in your life is at the heart of the gospel. So first, he describes how the Gentiles are brought close, which is through what? Through the, through the uh, blood of Christ. Through Christ's blood, they are brought close. Juxtapose that to a Jewish belief in salvation. What was it? It wasn't through the blood of Christ. It was through their blood. Do you see the difference? It was through, no, 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 I was born through a bloodline, and so therefore I am saved. I have salvation through being a part of God's family, which I was born into. So what Paul brings in and introduces here is, no, 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 through the blood of Christ, you are all now born into a new thing, a new family. You have a new standing there. Now, what I want you to see is this beautifully echoes the message of Matthew 11, 28 through 30, says this. I'm just going to read it for you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Does anybody feel like they need a soul rest today? Does that sound good? He finishes with this. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those are Jesus' words in the book of Matthew. What I want you to see today that Jesus says in Matthew 11 is a redemption of something that happened in the beginning of the story. What Jesus is saying here in 11, and Paul is echoing, is he's saying, listen, you come to Jesus, and it's difficult, 
And what I want you to say, life is hard. Well, when did life get hard? Because this is the heart of the gospel. At the fall. When you read the story in the beginning, Adam and Eve aren't sitting around going, man, we got to go to work today. This is a bummer. That's not the message. The message is paradise. They are living and working free of duress. The fall occurs, and now it's plain language. You are going to struggle and toil to work the land. Work's going to get hard. So in the fall, life gets hard. The message of Matthew 11 and what Jesus is bringing in here is the gospel. It is what, what Paul's saying here is, listen, I'm here to redeem that. Right, the covenants of promise, the promises of God. I'm here to usher those in. He's coming back and saying, listen, life's gonna be hard one way or the other. It's already hard, you live in a fallen world. The offer of Christ is that in that, I will meet you and walk through that. I'm not gonna alleviate your circumstances. Hey, believers today, is your life perfect? No, it's not. Your life is hard, and it's hard because we live in a fallen world. The message of Christ is I will come into your heart and walk with you. I will do what? I will lighten your burden, okay? My yoke is easy. You're already under a yoke. And if you don't know Christ, you are living under the fall. And when you come to know him, he removes that yoke and gives you a new yoke. What does that yoke look like? It's right here in this verse. He himself is our peace. Oh, that's the beauty, isn't it? Matthew 11 gets, gets fulfilled right there, gets colored in because he comes along and he goes, I'll be your peace. I'll walk with you. You can walk it alone, it's gonna be hard. Or you can walk that same hard life with me and I will be there giving you a supernatural peace and a supernatural comfort. Anybody in this room ever been going through something and they're just going, man, this is so tough and I don't know why, but I feel absolutely at peace even though my circumstances are a dumpster fire. Anybody ever feel that way? That's Jesus in your life. That's this verse fulfilled. He is your peace. His presence brings peace. Peace. It's one of the signs he's here. What a beautiful thing. That's what Paul's getting to. It's this incredible gospel message. I always say, hey, here's my gospel pitch for the day. If you're in this room and you don't know Jesus Christ and you're exhausted, what I'm telling you is the message of the gospel is not come and Jesus will make your life easy. It's come and he will walk through the hard with you. That's the message of the gospel. It's just plain and simple. It's not Christianity is not this prosperity deal. Come on in, everybody gets a jet and a Range Rover. No, the message of the gospel is life's already hard. Let him join you in your heart and show you how much better he is than everything else that you're using to try and cope. Everything else that you're using. If I got tired people in here today that don't know Jesus Christ, I want you to hear me. I want to talk to you. I've been where you've been. I'm just telling you, Jesus is an upgrade. <laughs> Understatement of the, of the year. But he comes and brings peace beyond our understanding. It is supernatural and the natural does not understand it. All right, we gotta keep moving. I could do this all day, all right. So 14 does something else. It introduces this new deal for Paul where he's talking now, these next three verses are gonna hone in, 14, 15, and 16, on in, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Scripture just always weaves together in such incredible ways. Here's what I want you to see. When Jesus was crucified, let's go back to that picture of him on the cross, okay? When he gets crucified, something incredible happens and it speaks to what we're doing today. He gets crucified and the moment where he breathes his last, the earth shakes and something happens in the temple. And here's what's going on. The temple 
Uh, Second Temple Judaism is, is kind of what's going on here. The temple is sitting there, and as the courts and all the stuff are going on, and then you've got the building itself, and it keeps working towards the center, the center, the center. And in the center of the temple is the most intimate, the most holy place that exists within all of Judaism. It's the Holy of Holies. It's where the Ark of the Covenant sits. And the high priest, after going through a tremendous amount of cleansing rituals, walks into the Holy of Holies once a year and sprinkles blood on the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins of Israel. And then he makes his way out. And this gigantic thick curtain separates the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwells among his people. It stays there and only one guy can get to the presence of God once a year. When Christ was crucified, the earth shook and that thick curtain was torn in half. A beautiful symbolism of exactly what's talking about here. The hostility between Jew and Gentile. Only a Jewish man, one man could go into that place with the presence of God. And when Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect blood spilt for all was spilt, it was the final sacrifice and that curtain was no longer necessary. And what's being talked about here today is this. It's that that wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile comes apart. And God is back where he always longed to be, which is where? With his people. In relationship. You go back to Deuteronomy and you read the beginning of the book. He says, I want to be your God. And I want you to be my people. And I want to be with you. And they foul that up really good. And you go to the end of the story and guess what? God's not going to ditch that. His plan gets fulfilled. Go to Revelation. At the end, after the old earth has passed away and the sea is no more, he creates a new heaven and a new earth, and guess where he is? With no more tears, with no more suffering, and he's back where he said he would be, with his people. I will be their God, they will be my people, and I will dwell among them as their God. The symbolism Paul is using here is so incredible because it's basically saying we tear it all down and now God is loose. He's back out where he always longed to be with his people. Now, 15 and 16 do this. How did he do it? Well, he did it this way. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of where there were two. So making peace. It's restoration. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. That's how hostility gets killed, because he fulfills the law. So it, it looks like this. You know, the, the, the law in and of itself was a fairly robust document to start with. And then the Pharisees took it and just amplified it. And it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And pretty soon it was a utopia of legalism, which is where Jesus found it. And he came in, he looked at the Pharisees and he goes, you don't get it. You're tithing on the cumin and the dill, these silly little things that you're so serious about. And you've lost something important. You've lost what I always wanted, relationship. That's what I wanted with you. And you've lost the heart. He calls them whitewashed tombs. And you go, okay, well, what's that all about? It's that they lost the heart, the heart of Christ, to be in relationship with him. So Jesus comes back to pay for it. The, the best thing that I can do here to kind of describe this is give you this picture. It's like th this whole idea that Jesus creates one man where there was two is like two rivers, all right? And when rivers run parallel to each other, over time, something kind of happens, and they start to erode away at the bank with the... Pre Water is a terrifying force. Can we just... I mean, that is a... It's a crazy thing, and rivers move, and they move what's in their way. And so, 
As rivers move, eventually they erode away at what's in the middle. And when they come together, it's this furious explosion of all these things that are happening, okay? It's just these two waters come together and it just starts destroying the land in the middle. That connection, that place where they come together is called the confluence of two rivers. That is the best picture I can give you for what Paul is describing right here. He's saying where once there was two, there is no longer two. You are now one. And the beauty of a confluence is that it's a relatively, and the reason it's a relatively short distance is because if you get 500 yards, a half a mile downstream, you can no longer discern where one river started and the other ended, which water was which, because they've flown together to become one, and now this mighty force that was less than it was two is now much stronger and moving at a quicker pace. That's the picture Paul is painting. He comes in and he says, what Jesus does by abolishing the law, is that he might create in himself one new man, where at one point there was two, making peace. He brought peace, even to these hostile racial issues. He comes in and goes, no, no, no. I knit this together and that he might reconcile both in one body. What body? Body of Christ, right? The family of faith, his bride, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. That picture from marriage is beautiful here. So that's the idea. And again, the ground is level. Everybody stands unified, ready to move into a new body. Now, a little detail from the text, because Paul is uniquely qualified to carry this message. Do we, do we know that? Like, we always affectionately kind of refer to Philippians 3, 4 through 6 as pastors. We, we kind of call that the super Jew passage, because Paul is just sitting there rolling through his incredible credentials, which are off the charts, when he sits there and he goes, listen, I was born into the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. I was given the name of Israel's first king, all right? I, I was trained at the absolute best feet of the best professors in the law. Nobody's got, zeal, you wanna talk about zeal? I was killing Christians because I thought that's what God wanted me to do. But when God got a hold of his heart, the game changed. And so now Paul sits there and he has a unique place because he can stand in the middle. He can be the landmass in the middle of the two rivers and he can go, uh, Jews, Wait, what's that? You want to argue about who's more Jewish? Well, let's do that. I got boom, 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 boom. I count it all as rubbish, but I have you beat in your own game. Come and join me in the one river. And then he can do something incredible with the Gentiles to stand there and say, listen, guys, you felt way ostracized here. You've been pushed away from God for so long. Weren't in the club. Did I touch it? Sometimes I touch the mic. He said that you, you, you're out of the club, right? And you felt that way. But now guess what? You're in. I'm inviting you in. The Jew of all Jews says, you, come and join us. We're all in one river. What a message. And Paul is so uniquely positioned to stand there in the middle shore between these two rivers and say, now you become one. You are unified. And you stand together. He closes this off by basically saying, and he came and preached peace. Who? Jesus. Jesus came in and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and to you who were close. He brought you both together. Now, what I want to do is I want to rattle through these last five verses and bullet point them out for you, and then I want to ask you some questions in conclusion. But 18 through 22 stand as sort of a structure of unity here, and this is what it sounds like. It says, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being its cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by, for God by the Spirit. Verse 18, it says we have access in one spirit. The next time you're arguing with the brother or sister in Christ, I want you to think about something. You share something with them more intimate than you, you do with many other people on the planet. A spirit. The next time you want to argue with a brother or sister in Christ, remember that you share a spirit with them. The Holy Spirit resides in both of you. And at that point, we have to remember that our differences at times need to be filtered through that lens because we lose that at times. Verse 19, no longer strangers, but fellows of a household. Paul reiterates 11 and 12 language into 19. He goes, no, you're not strangers and aliens anymore. You're now citizens into a new family, into a new place, a new kingdom with the saints and the members of the households of God. And then 20, he comes in and says, this household has a strong foundation. Apostles and prophets, what do those represent? Apostles, New Testament, prophets, Old Testament. It's both sides of the book. He's sitting there going, listen, apostles, it's, it's the here and the now. It's the what Jesus is doing. And then on the other side, he goes, and it's the Old Testament, it's the prophets. It's the thing that this whole deal was built on, right? They both stand as the foundation with a cornerstone above all else, the beautiful figure, Jesus Christ. The whole structure being joined together and growing into a temple. This is where I want to challenge you today with 21 and 22, just to start. We have to recognize that we are being built into something. And I hadn't planned this, but it just worked out in a wonderful way. We talked for two weeks, a couple weeks ago, on marriage. And we kept using that picture of Jesus' bride, Jesus' bride, Jesus' bride. And the reality is, that's us. That's the church. I work at a church, and what we're being described as being built into is being without spot or blemish or wrinkle. We got a long way to go. The Lord is drawing us into something that he might present to himself in splendor. And unity is at the heart of that message. Because when we stand back and say, I don't want to hang out with you because of this difference, this difference, this difference. I don't want to be in relationship. I don't want to go there with you because we don't see eye to eye on this issue. We are tearing apart the house of God, which we are being built into that God might dwell within. And we have to remember that when we go to some of these places. So now, here's my application questions. It's going to be different life areas where I think we can find disunity. And all I want you to do with these is just think about them. I'm not accusing anyone of anything. I found stuff in my own heart that I just went, yep, I'm not doing that one right. But first area, politically. We have these deals where we sit down and we go, listen, politically, I just eye to eye with this person. And so therefore, we don't spend time together. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Can we just talk for a second about the fact that there are very few issues that we deal with today that were anywhere near as contentious or as big as the racial issue that Paul's addressing here for the church. This was a contentious racial issue that had gone on for centuries. It was the Jews and everybody else. And Paul comes in and goes, you don't get to cop out because of that racial issue. You have to find unity because you've been brought together in one man, Christ. And we want to stand back today and say, but Rustin, there's moral issues within our voting. Rustin, my political stances are based on my morals and my ethics. I get that. That is awesome. 
But what you have to hear me is the Jews saying, no, 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 in Christ, you have to love each other. You have to be unified. Now, here's what this doesn't mean. It does not mean you will agree. You may not agree with each other. That's okay. But you cannot divide and decide that you won't love each other. That's what Paul's saying here. He says you have to dive in. You have to be willing to meet each other where you are and love each other in the midst of the moment. Relationally, I see this all the time. This is a challenge, and it may sting, but I just, I, I see this over and over again. I see people come into relationship with family members or friends, and they come in and they go, you know what, this person's not living the way that I think they should, or I think they're living in sin. So they take the step and they tell them that, and they tell them again, 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 and every single time they meet with that person, they make sure that they reiterate to that person how, that, how they feel. And I just wanna ask the question, who are you trusting to change their heart? Are you trusting God? Are you trusting Jesus to step in and to do the sanctification work in their life? Or are you convinced that the only tool God can use is you and you've tied yourself to a conviction that says, if I don't, I'm failing the Lord and I might miss them. God is more hungry for that person's restoration than you could ever be no matter how much you love them. But at times we can be shouting so loud into somebody's ear that it's hard for them to hear the whisper of the Lord. And I know that that's hard because we go, no, 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 it's a kid. And I gotta, I know. All I'm saying is take it to the Lord and ask what should your posture be? Submit that to him. And if he comes back and goes, keep shouting, okay, fine. But if the Lord comes back and says, just give me some, give me some time. Release them unto me and see what I do with some space in that area. You might be surprised what he does. And you might be a little shocked at, wait a minute, if I deal with this person the way Jesus deals with me, which is graciously slow to anger, gentle and lowly in heart, I wonder what he might do in that situation with this other person. And I'll just love them right where they are. Generationally, we got all kinds of generational stuff going on. And I'll confess something to you guys. I found out recently, and I'm still dealing with it, I'm a millennial. I'm working through it, but it turns out I was born in 1982. Some of you just had a panic attack because you realized your pastor was born the year you graduated high school or something. It's okay. <laughs> We're going to be fine. But the reality, I was born in 1982. That is the first year that you can claim to be a millennial. So I'm on that end of it. I made it. And the reality is I, I sit kind of between these two generations, and there are things that, uh, there, there are issues within the millennial generation that I, I understand, and that makes sense to me. There are others that are very confusing. And I do the same thing going back to my parents' generation and looking at theirs. The, the, my, my dad's a baby boomer. And I look back and I go, I, I get that. And there's other things that I don't get. So I feel kind of like I'm on a little bit of an island. But when it comes to generational stuff, what I see is this. I see that at times we've just kind of... <coughs> We just split. And we've just kind of done the, ah, they don't get me. And we've done the, they don't get it. <laughs> they don't get me, and they don't get it. And, and both parties kind of sit there. We've had some incredible redemptive work in this area in the venue. I've, I've tried to pull together um, young marrieds. And some of them are still engaged, and some of them are newly married. And I put them in pods together and little groups, and then I find an awesome leader couple to come in and to mentor them. And it has been amazing to listen to these couples who are millennials, sitting back and going, we are learning so much from them. They have so much to offer us. It has been so good. Oh, they, they are just this wealth of knowledge. 
And to listen to these leader couples go, we feel like we have spiritual children. This has been such a sweet experience and they are excited and they are awesome. Let me just level the playing field a little bit. One thing that I see in this generation of millennials that I love the most is they are not turning away from culture at all. They are in coffee shops and tattoo parlors. They are out there engaging with culture in a way that many other generations have been nervous to do because it feels like condoning culture. And this millennial generation says, I don't care, I'm going out and I'm gonna be Jesus Christ even in places that would make others nervous. They're doing that really well and I wanna champion that. But millennials, I'll tell you right now, if we do not tap in to the wealth and the knowledge of the generations that have come before us, we are crazy. They have done this already. They've done parenting. Whether you like the way they did it or not, they've done it. They've raised kids. They've been married. And if you go through life and you go, I'll figure it out on my own, that's fine. It's just going to be hard. And you're going to make the same mistakes that they've made. The scriptures speak to a culture of honor where we honor those who've come before us and we get excited about what the next generation is going to do. Because we work together to make sure that the generation before us pushes them as far as they can and when their ceiling is the next generation's floor, they let go. And God continues to generationally upgrade. That's a culture of honor. But that takes a lot of cooperation and a tremendous amount of humility. We gotta be willing to think that way. Okay, hot button for the day, race. In our country right now, race, there is a tremendous amount going on. And I had an experience this week that humbled me greatly. I was on vacation, and a good friend of mine shot me an email. He was a brother in Christ. Um, we could go to Phoenix Seminary together. He's a black friend of mine. And he shot me a Facebook message. And he said, Rustin, I just want to tell you, if you ever want to get together and just talk about everything that's going on in our country, I just want you to know I would be happy to do that with you. <laughs> I got so choked up because it wasn't requested it was literally my friend going, I bet Rustin could be confused about all of this. And I want to make myself available to care for Rustin in the midst of this very confusing time for everyone. It blessed me beyond what I could even describe. Because I felt so cared for that he thought of me to say, do you want to talk about this? And I said, yeah, as soon as I get back, when can we schedule that, Sam? And he said, great, let's connect. My question to you today is when was the last time you sat down with a brother or sister in Christ of a different race and said, there's a lot going on in our country. How are you doing with all of this? Or maybe lead with, I'm confused. And then you sat there for a second while you maybe were nervous that they may not respond well, knowing that if they did, you just humbly sit back and go, my heart is not to offend, I just... I want to understand and I want to care for you and honestly, I, I may need you to care for me because a lot of people are confused and a lot of people are scared and nobody's talking. And I just wonder what that would look like if we did. But lastly, and I'll, I'll kind of start closing with this, but theologically, we had a great experience and I've told this story before, but I'll, I'll kind of close with this. There's this uh, wonderful church in Wales called Highfields and we partner with them and we do a lot of stuff together and their pastors came over and they shared at one point as they were talking they said it's amazing to us because at this point the UK is a predominantly atheist country they don't really they're a post-evangelical uh, country and, and so as they came in they said it's amazing to us that we can walk into a Starbucks and see people reading their Bibles that blows our minds we just do not see that in the UK 
So we asked him kind of in response and said, well, that's great. What are the things that you see that kind of concern you? And they said, well, we think you're about 50 or 60 years behind us. And I went, that is such a typically British thing to think. You stinking Brits. So I didn't say that. But what I did think to myself for a minute was, well, what do you mean by that? And they said, here's what we mean. 50 or 60 years ago, we, as a church in the UK, we turned away from culture. This is why I'm so proud of the millennials, okay? They said, we turned away from culture. And we turned into ourselves because security was being threatened. We just, we turned away. And he said, once we turned in on ourselves, something very interesting started to happen. We started to devour each other. And we started to splinter off into all of these meaningless denominations where we couldn't agree on something, so we just kept splitting and kept splitting. And they said, and if you drive through the UK today, you will see hundreds of little 50-person churches that could no longer sustain themselves. And the enemy won. And the UK doesn't know Jesus. Why? Because unity in the church was lost. Because they divided over theological issues. And what scared me to death is church, I think the first process is starting to be completed, turning away from culture. We're not willing to engage in places where we used to because it's scary. And when security gets threatened and we make decisions out of an insecure place, all of a sudden, it gets scary. It gets challenging. And what I'm not asking you to do is throw security to the wind and don't think about safety. That's not it. I'm asking you to ask the question, Jesus, am I where you want me? That's a better way to ask that. But to think about, does fear drive my decisions? Because if it does, your decision-making model will crumble. It will not yield fruit over time. If fear drives every decision you make, I'm telling you, that is a rough deal, and it will continue to take you apart over time. I just, I kind of want to close with this. I I think that as we look at culture around us, and we look at the unity of the church, I've used this example before, but... I challenge you, if you're sitting back and you are just furious with a brother or sister in Christ, I would submit to you today that you may not be spending enough time in the culture. Because what ends up happening is culture really shapes us and helps us see that we have these things that are going on around us. And when you spend a week out trying to love someone who generally disdains you because of your love and your passion for Jesus Christ, you're not as concerned with whether or not the person you sit next to on Sunday believes the earth is 6,000 year old or billions. It tends not to matter as much. We asked a missionary, hey, what do you guys do uh, in China when you all of a sudden have these issues where theological stuff pops up? They said, well, the next underground church is 50 miles away, so we work it out. I just think sometimes if we were to ask ourselves the question, if the next church were 50 miles away, how inclined would you be to be so divided on whatever issue it is that you're arguing with a brother or sister in Christ about? Hey, I appreciate you guys' patience. I'm a little bit over. Let me pray for us right now, and then uh, we'll dismiss. So Lord, today we just come to you. These are tough questions. These are tough times. There's a lot going on, not just in our country, but in our world, and Lord, we still have to step back and realize that you're still calling us to unity the way Paul is calling Jew and Gentile in this passage. You're still calling us to meet on the grounds of 
of, of racism, of, of, of different uh, standings in relationships, of theological differences, political differences, and, and generational differences to come in and to say, I still want you unified because you are my dwelling place, you are my bride, and I, I want you to continue to be worked into a place where you are spotless and without blemish, that you might be presented to me as spotless, without wrinkle, in splendor. Lord, that's still your call on our life as the church. Lord, I hope today's message just lovingly gathers us into a place where we can stand back and ask questions to just say, Lord, where is it? Knowing you're not mad at us, you're not frustrated with anybody, but that you're lovingly coming in and saying, I may have a better way. I may have more for you in this new vein of life. So Lord, that's just our hope. That's our prayer today. And we love you. We say this in your name. Amen.